Well, saints, uh, praise the Lord. <laughs> we come to the concluding message of our, of our conference this morning. And uh, the Lord has uh, truly blessed us Amen. by, in these days, in his recovery, opening to us the knowing and experiencing of him in the book of Colossians. And so uh, we've seen that in Colossians, perhaps the deepest of Paul's epistles, perhaps the most profound of the New Testament books, we have an exceedingly profound revelation of who Christ is in his person and in his work. And that the significance of such a profound revelation Thank you, Brother Phil. The significance of this kind of profound revelation is with the full expectation and intention that this revelation <laughs> that this revelation would bring us into a correspondingly deep experience. With this revelation of the all-inclusive Christ, there's the aspect of his being all-extensive. And in this, in this book, which has two sections, chapters one and two, on the revelation of Christ as the all-inclusive, all-extensive one, and chapters three and four on the living out of Christ as this all-inclusive and all-extensive one there is a line that we've been helped to identify, a line that we can call the line of his all And amazingly, in the midst of chapters one and two on the revelation of what this profound, all-inclusive, all-extensive Christ is in his person and work is something that would seem apparently absolutely unknowable. Christ is the very... Thank you, Paul. Sorry. Oh, no, no, it's fine. Christ is the very mystery of God. Amen. So, who can know the mystery of God? In this uh, message uh, given in the Thanksgiving conference, do you remember the brother opened saying, how am I going to give this message? Who can speak? What can you say? What can you say about Christ as the mystery of God? Saints, we've got a lot to say. <laughs> got a lot to say. Because this aspect, this ultimate aspect of what Christ is in his person and work is nestled in the midst of these two chapters, chapters 1 and chapter 2. And these two chapters give us a line of his all-extensiveness. And when we follow this line of his all-extensiveness, as we have in this conference, we follow this line, it brings us back to the center of chapters 1 and 2, the mystery of God, and we say, I see it. Amen. I see it. I've got it. I can experience it. Amen. So... Colossians 2.2, 2. 
uses this phrase, the mystery of God. And this phrase, the mystery of God, looks back to chapter 1, verse 27, where it refers to the mystery hidden from the ages and now revealed to us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen. Colossians 2.2 looks back to this, the mystery hidden from the ages. Then 2.2 looks forward to the aspects, to the aspects of uh, the all-extensive Christ mentioned later in this chapter, indicating that the answer to who the mystery of God is, the mystery hidden from the ages, is the following of the line of all extensiveness from chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, including chapter 1, verse 18, and then chapter 2, verse 16 through 18, as we've seen in the, in the conference. And when we see these things, when we see these things, we can come back and say, oh, this is the mystery of God. Amen. So saints, as we've seen, if we'd like to know Christ in his extensiveness, beginning with the implications of what he is as our, as our good land, thank you, as our good land, we have to understand, we have to understand that this matter of understanding Christ as the mystery of God as the other stations we've passed through, we can describe as a relationship truth. You want to know Christ as the mystery of God? Yes. Well, as we've seen, beginning with the revelation of the good land, through our walking through in him as the good land, our taking him, making him preeminent, and our taking him as the reality of all positive things, if you want to know him as the mystery of God, you have got to be involved with him in the intended relationship. Amen. That intended relationship is referred to in 1 Corinthians 2.9, where the word prepared, God has prepared for those who love him an expansive, extensive experience beyond human comprehension, farther than the eye can see and ear can hear, for those who love him. So just consider yourself as a small human being. Nothing compared to Christ, right? <coughs> but you, to all of us, are a mystery. Are you not? Brother Sam, you're a mystery to us, brother. But there's one person to whom you're not a mystery. Uh, you're not a mystery to your dear wife. By being brought into intimate, personal, affectionate experience with you, your wife no longer holds you as a mystery. She knows you. You're a mystery revealed to your wife. So, to know the mystery of God Christ, as we've seen session by session, this is the perhaps un, um, 
unannounced, unadvertised key, we have to, we have to know him in this, in this intimate, personal, and affectionate way. But if we do that, if we do that, we can follow this sequence that we've gone through in the line of the extensiveness of, of Christ in Colossians 1 and 2, we can first of all place. Then we can make. Then we can take. For us to place, to make, and to take him are all matters of this being explored relationship that opens up to us what he is as the mystery of God. So first of all, we have to place ourselves on him as our God allotted portion, our good land. And our good land Christ is our good land as revealed in Galatians 3.14. The consummated spirit fulfills the typology of the good land as it existed for God's Old Testament people in which they lived. In which they lived. So for us to place ourselves in the good land means that we place ourselves in Christ to live there to live there, to have him be everything to us, everything related to our person, everything related to our doings, everything related to our priorities. He becomes everything to us. So we live with a consciousness that just as God's Old Testament people lived on that land of Palestine, now we live on and in the consummated pneumatic Christ the territorial Christ as the one who's come into us to dwell in our mingled spirit, Amen. who when we love him and touch him, we enter into him. Amen. And we, in our spirit, on the good land of Christ, live there. Amen. So, as we do this, we begin to discover, enjoy, apply, and know him in new ways. This was in our first session. Then we make, make him preeminent. We make him preeminent with a background realization that there is an operating principle in the entire universe based upon the very throne of God and the divine administration where Christ is being made preeminent in the entire universe. Amen. God on the throne is exalting Christ. Amen. And in his economy, worked out by that throne, he's exalting Christ. Amen. And so in the, in the divine being, Christ is being exalted and being made preeminent. Amen. As a result, many things happen on the earth. Many things happen to you and I. Right. All of these things have one common factor. They are involved in making Christ preeminent. Amen. 
so we can understand what others cannot understand. Why does this happen in world politics and world events? Why does that happen in our community? Why does this happen in my neighborhood? Well, it's true, some of this is explained by the fact that all of this operation has a diabolical opposition, and the enemy does do certain things. But even if, if those things happen, it's because the throne knows they can be used to exalt Christ. Amen. And so with this principle as a background, we realize that we live in such a universe where Christ is being exalted, and he's being given the preeminence. The throne has given him the preeminence. The divine God has given him the preeminence. And he takes this preeminence, this treasure of the preeminence that he has in the entire universe, conferred by God himself in his divine trinity. Of course, this one is the divine trinity. But you understand this aspect of his, of his economy. So he has, has been conferred with all preeminence, and then he delivers it to you. Kneeling down, lowering himself, emptying himself out as the exalted preeminent one in the universe and says, may I please give to you my preeminence. Amen. And in a sense, he makes you, in, in that sense, in that personal sense, he makes you the preeminent one in the universe. And so as we're sitting here, we're persons who, as his beloved ones, have, have been endowed with the preeminence that exceeds the preeminence given by the throne to Christ himself. And in our personal universe, we are the owner of that preeminence. And then he receives or he humbly, sedately waits to see what you will do with that preeminence. Will you live with and apply that preeminence in your personal universe? Or will you say, Lord, I give you this preeminence back, this relinquished preeminence of yours, I give it back to you? Amen. Well, for most persons, as you know and can imagine, and for us all too often, we say thank you very much for this preeminence, and I will sit on the throne of this preeminence, and I will administer my personal universe. But, hallelujah, we can realize we can make him preeminent Amen. in our personal universe. How? We make him preeminent by giving him preeminence in our love. And we take that first love that we remember at the from the time of our regeneration. We take that love and we update it and we strengthen it. Amen. And based upon all that he's done for us and all that we've enjoyed of him, we give him a new consecration and give, give him all of our being. Give everything to him and give him preeminence in our love, which, yes, we give everything to him. This refers to our giving him preeminence in our being. Once he has our love in preeminence, it follows. It's effortless. It's 
not difficult that we quickly give him the preeminence in our, in our being, which means, which means that our heart, which tends to be focused on the various matters before us in a given daily schedule or daily routine, our heart, which tends to be focused on those things, learns a, a crucial lesson in giving and preeminence, learns a crucial lesson that, yes, our heart will, will direct to those things, but it's rooted, routed, routed. Firstly, our heart turns to him. Our heart turns to him first, and it turns to him first, and we, con and we contact him. He's released into our being to be our capacities, our strength, our interest, our view, our wherewithal, Amen. our everything. We become a new person. Amen. We become a new person. And now, in him and with him, now we face with a merged and new and, yes, a new strength and heart, we face the things of our day. That, giving him the preeminence in our being, allows him to have preeminence in the experiences of which our day is composed. So as we do this through our day, our morning experiences, our afternoon experiences, and on and on, then gradually, gradually, as we learn this and apply this matter of placing ourselves in the registration that we're living in him and we're living on him as the good land, now giving him, giving him the preeminence in our daily experiences, he, become, he has preeminence not only in our experiences, but this becomes the experiences in our living. This becomes the experiences in our living. And this living is what is implied by the good land. So our giving him preeminence is the way that we live on the good land. Now he has preeminence, not only in our love, not only in our being, not only in our experiences, but by having, by having preeminence in our living, he has preeminence in our entire personal universe. Now, his having preeminence in our entire personal universe returns to him his rightful preeminence, and he takes that and in that subset of the universe, he has full authority, full way. As it relates to us, he is preeminent in the universe. Taking a step back, if he's only preeminent in the expansive universe, and he's not preeminent, in your personal universe, he has a flawed preeminence in the universe. He cannot have a flawed preeminence in the personal universe, so he has to have preeminence in us first. When he has that preeminence, we are living on in him, on him, as the good land, the nomadic spirit who indwells us. Now, then, we not only 
place ourselves in him as the good land, in our realization, remember, our consciousness. We live with an abiding consciousness. I am living on the good land in the pneumatic Christ through my mingled spirit as I live out my day. And then with that, with that realization, oh, we give him this sequential restoring of his preeminence, beginning with our love, our being, our experiences, our living, our entire personal universe, including our relationships, all that is his. Now, for us to, for us to do this, we also have the undergirding support, the guy wires that hold up the structure, that make sure everything stays intact, and we don't slip. We have that we can take him as the reality of all the shadows. As we take him as the reality of all the shadows, not only the persons around us, not only the, the events of our daily living, not only the inanimate objects around us and, and the people and even the positive animals, everything, everything becomes, becomes a shadow which traces back to him as the intrinsic personal reality of the one who is everything to us. And so what this is, is this is the line. This is the line of his extensiveness. In Colossians, this is chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Uh, let's say 5 through 7, as we did yesterday, 5 through 7. This is chapter, chapter 1, verse 18, but also with the support of verses 15 through 17. This is chapter 2, verses 16 through 18a. And so through this, through this, we trace the line of his, his extensiveness, and we place ourselves on the good land, make him preeminent, take him as the reality of every positive thing. And then through the extensive, all extensive Christ, traced this way, we, we also experience Christ as all-inclusivity. We have him as the all-inclusive one, the all-extensive one, who we do all of this by enjoying him in our personal well, dear saints, relationship uh, <clears throat> with him in full and developing consciousness. And as we do that, this brings us to Colossians 2.2, Colossians 2.2, and we know him from within as the mystery of God. Who can know the mystery of God? We know the mystery of God Amen. by taking Christ as the reality of, Amen. by taking Christ as the all-extensive one revealed in Colossians in this sequence. Then, when we have this, everything's different. <coughs> Everything's different. It's been said 
that it's a predictable experience of the Christ taking life, of the Christ experiencing life, that the time arrives when it's not that someone tells you, it's not that you read something, but you awake in the morning, or you have an experience during the day and you realize, my, it's different. It's different. It's not the same as it was before. I'm not the same as I was before. My future is not the same as it was before. Everything's different. It's mysterious. It's just, it's just there as a realization. Things are changed forever in the most positive way. And saints, as we take him, as the extensive Christ revealed in Colossians, we just realize our future is different. Our present's different. The prospects are different. And we have the experience in Colossians 2.2 that our hearts are comforted. Our hearts are comforted. Why? Because we have now the riches, the riches of full assurance. We know why the things happened to us in the past. We know now how we got to where we are today. We know who we are now. We know where we're going. We know what we have to do. So saints, We got it. We got it. We know what we have to do. We know what we have to do. We have to follow, chart, track the all extensive Christ as revealed in Colossians, especially chapters one and cha chapter one and chapter two. And as we do this, as we do this, as we saw yesterday. as we give him preeminence in our personal universe, as we take him as the reality of all the shadows, in our personal universe, he becomes everything. He is everything. And as he is everything in our personal universe, he's come back. He's come back. What boldness. We have now. You know, we're going to meet the Lord one day. How do you feel? Do you feel ready? Yeah, you're ready. You're ready. You're ready. He's come back in your personal universe. So, in the opening of the book, it says, it has the phrase, the hope laid up in the heavens for you because of your love for all the saints. Amen. When we have the revelation and experience of the all-extensive Christ in Colossians, and we make him, we, we place ourselves on him as the good land. We make him preeminent in our personal universe. We take him as the reality of, of all the shadows. And... <clears throat> and live, live this way. Our hope is laid up fully in the heavens. And 
we have the, and Colossians 2.2 again, we have the, we have the full, <coughs> we have the riches of full assurance. So, Brother Lee asked the question, if the Lord were to, were to come back now, and were to appear right now, would you shrink back? Or would you say, hallelujah? hallelujah. Well, because he's now preeminent in our personal universe, because we live in him as the good land, because we take him as everything and have him as ev everything in our personal universe, it's no different. It's just a continuation. So, in Luke 21, 36, where it refers to our standing before the Son of Man, this standing before him is just brings, brings forth a smile of continuation. Amen. Just a little bit more of experiencing the all-extensive Christ. So, when we have him in this way, The good land, as in Song of Songs 2.12, is our land. The preeminence is restored to him. He is benefited by everything, and we are benefited in our relationship by everything around us. And everything's... complete and taken care of. And so in that pose, in that stance with him, enjoying him in, yes, in wonderful coherence and enjoyment, we know him as the mystery of God. Then this little question that comes up when you talk to the upcoming generation, and they say, brother, you as an older one, <laughs> you as an old one, what assurance can you give us that we won't one day lose the Lord's recovery? How do we know we'll be kept all of our days? How can we be kept all of our days? I've seen persons, this young one might say, I, I, I see my counterparts, they've gone. I see some older ones, they've gone too. How do I know that won't happen to me? Colossians 2.2, the riches of full assurance. By, by experiencing the all-extensive Christ in Colossians, who causes him to be all, which experience causes him to be also all-inclusive to us. Enables us to know Christ as the very mystery of God, the otherwise unknowable one. And as we do this, we have the full assurance, not just that we're right with him, not just about this revelation, but about the Lord's recovery, but about the ground of the church, but about all of the truths we treasure. And we are solidified. We are safeguarded. Nothing can move us. So it was with this re realization. You remember how 
We like to say sometimes that Brother Lee told Brother Nee to comfort him at a difficult time. Brother Nee, if you reconsider your way and you depart from the Lord's recovery, I want you to know I will be unaffected by that. I will continue on in the Lord's recovery. And we admire that. Do you know when that was spoken? That was spoken with a consideration of Colossians 2.2. Brother Lee said, when I told Brother Nee that, I had the riches of full assurance. And I could not be dissuaded. I could not be convinced otherwise. I could not be. I was set. I was set. So this morning, dear saints, we can, we should be set. Amen. We should be set. We're arriving in this circuit, in this circuit, in the line of the extents of Christ. Through him is the good land in whom we place ourselves with full consciousness, realizing that this is an experience of our intimate relationship with him. Through Colossians 2.6, where we walk in him, having been rooted in him as our land. Give him preeminence. Take him, exercising every day to connect everything in our daily living to our fresh, present experience of him. Now we know him as the mystery of God. Marvelous, huh? Amen. Marvelous. <clears throat> so with this uh, in view, let's uh, proceed to our outline. <clears throat> Roman number one says <clears throat> that the all-inclusive extensive Christ is the mystery of God. A, God himself is a mystery and Christ is the mystery of this mystery. So Christ is mysterious, the mystery of a mystery. Who can know him? The one who can know him is the one who's involved in the extensive experience of the revelation of his extensiveness in Colossians. Amen. Amen. Praise him. Amen. Point B, the mystery of God indicates something incomprehensible and inexplicable. So you remember John chapter 6 says that when that bread came down from heaven, that was Christ. When that manna was there, they couldn't understand it. And they said, they said, what is this? Right? This is the literal meaning of manna. What is this? Manna was a mystery. A mystery. How could something have a heavenly source rain down from the heavens but be physical? Be physical. How does something come from the heavens and be physical? How does something melt with a rising sun but you can boil it? And various, various Mysteries having to do with the manna. What is it? What is it? 
Well, this, of course, points to Christ as the incarnate mystery of God, the one who, one who expresses God and is his, is his uh, fullness, uh, who can know him. The preciousness of this outline is, as we read these points, we realize that we are knowing him and we are going to know him from within as we live on him as the good land, make him preeminent, take him as the reality of all the shadows, and know him in the way that forms a line of continuation between today and our full experience in the kingdom and for eternity. C, as the mystery of God, the all-inclusive extensive Christ is the definition, explanation, and expression of God. He's the very word of God. So <clears throat> this definition has two steps for us in relation to the extensiveness of Christ. The first was one of his extensive limitation. When he, as the very eternal and infinite God, as the eternal word, became the incarnate word in his incarnation, and then as such was the explanation and definition and explanation of God in the flesh. Then, through his death and resurrection, as he became the life-giving spirit and became the spirit as the promised blessing of Abraham revealed in Galatians 3.14, he became the one who was able to bring all of that definition into us to be partially known by us, according to Colossians 1.27, as the indwelling one. And he, meanwhile, became the expansive good land spirit in Galatians 3.14 for us to live in and to know him, for the knowing of this mystery, to know him from within. From within, so that we observe from within all of his virtues. Not only do we have access to them, sometimes silently, sometimes not so known to us as he indwells us, but from within, as we observe him, displayed, applied, and manifested in every experience of our daily living, we learn him in all kinds of new ways that we didn't know before, and every experience becomes a knowing of an aspect of Christ as the mystery of God <clears throat> the definition and explanation of God. So D says, as a result, as the mystery of God, Christ is the history of God. The whole story of God is in Christ and is Christ. So as we learn him as he indwells, as we learn him as we indwell him, not just that he indwells us. We learn him as we indwell him and we, and we live in him. We come to have his history open to us. Not in way of outward academic study, but we enter into his further unfolding of his history. And we're part of it. We observe it and form part of it. 
one, although God is... As we read through these points regarding Christ as the mystery of God, we'll realize that who can know him? Who can know him? Who can know him? And we have to answer. The only ones who can know him are the ones who, through the revelation of the extents of Christ in Colossians, live in him and on him, have him as pan preeminent and take him as everything and have him returned to inhabit and compose their entire personal universe and living and then from within and from without they know him. Amen. That's us now. That's us. So as we read through these points we shouldn't say, wow, who can know him? We say, Hallelujah! We can know him. This one we can know. Subpoint one under D says, although God is infinite and eternal, without beginning or ending, he also has a history. He has a story. Psalm 92 says, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Before you gave birth to the earth and to the world, from eternity to eternity. Point three says, God's history refers to the process through which <clears throat> he passed in Christ so that he may enter into us and we may be brought into him. So this is the story of uh, the extensive revelation in Colossians. Almost all believers know that he has come into them and they are desirous and set to, they would like to experience and know the one who has come into them. Not many believers know, notice the other side, that we may be brought into him to experience him from within in his incarnation. Experience him from within in his living, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. All these things are experienced as we live within him and he's applied to us in every aspect of our living day by day through this pathway. Wonderful. E, in the all-inclusive extensive Christ as the mystery of God, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So please notice in Colossians 2, 2, no, Colossians 2, 3, it says, in whom, in whom all the treasures are hidden. So if you would like to access those treasures, what do you need to do? You need to get into him in whom they are. And so the way we get into him is through this glorious pathway in the revelation of Colossians. We enter into him and we become to experience the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So yes, here, one, here once again, wisdom and knowledge are relationship truths. So who is wise? Who is knowledgeable? 
The Bible asks this question, who is wise? Paul asks, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapters 1 and 2, who is wise? Many would, like, would aspire to be wise. Many would, would consider to be wise. But wise, who is wise? Why, the person who is wise is the one who enters into what God has prepared. And what God has prepared is his very being for us to enter into him and to know him from within. This is reserved, according to Colossians 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 9, of course, to those who love him. So it's when we love him and we give him preeminence in our being that we turn our heart to him and we contact him. And we contact him. As we contact him, through that contact, yes, he accesses us, enriches us, makes us a new person with a new constitution within. But even more, he affords us welcome and an embracing entry into he himself. And as we're in him, we encounter treasure after treasure of wisdom. Amen. What is wisdom? Wisdom is getting into Christ. Amen. Wisdom is living in Christ. Amen. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowing the extents of Christ in Colossians, first in Revelation, then in experience by this sequence that I won't review again for lack of time. But the realization, oh, that I am living now in Christ as my universe. The fact that in this universe I sustain my presence here by giving him preeminence in my love, in my being, in my experiences, in my living, in my whole universe. Meanwhile, I'm bombarded with questions, with issues, with matters all around me. And so rather than being dissuaded, perplexed, discouraged by those things, I take every one of them as an occasion to grasp him, to hold him, and enter into him. And I find myself as one who now lives in him. And as I live in him, I'm wise. And I have knowledge, a kind of knowledge you don't get from textbooks, a kind of knowledge that's surpassing wisdom and knowledge is the knowing of Christ as the mystery of God from within. Then your heart's comforted. Then, you're, then you have the full riches of assurance. Hallelujah. So point one, wisdom is related to our spirit, and knowledge is related to our mind. <clears throat> so as we have experience after experience of him, through his extensiveness, our mind comes to understand these things and have full assurance of understanding. And we abound in wisdom, in all wisdom and prudence, Ephesians 1.8. Point two, God is the unique source of wisdom and knowledge. So who is wise? The one who knows God, how? Experientially, subjectively, in the way that's been open to his recovery. Three, 
This is the spiritual wisdom and knowledge of the divine economy concerning Christ and the church. So intrinsically, we know Christ and the church not by citing verses only, not by being dutiful saints, uh, not missing meetings only. We, we know the divine economy regarding Christ and the church through the extensive revelation and experience of Christ in Colossians. So, uh, let's see here. Um, using this term, um, economy and uh, mystery. So, <clears throat> I believe it's Ephesians 3.9 that refers to the economy of the mystery. The economy of the mystery. Now, so the economy of the mystery, we know through the extensive Christ, through through um, <clears throat> the extensive experience of Christ in Colossians, which is a book on the will of God. So the economy of the mystery in Ephesians three nine is by knowing the mystery of His will in Ephesians one five. Sorry, Ephesians 1.9. Ephesians 1.9. Once we know the, the mystery of his will in Ephesians 1.9 through Colossians, we follow this course of knowing him in his extensiveness, and we have the following experiences. First of all, by being drawn to him in our relationship with him and aspiring to live on him as, on him as the good land, we experience him as the mystery of faith in 1 Timothy 3.9. This is to contact him, to enjoy him, and to enter into him. Then as a result, we are able to live with him in 1 Timothy 3.16 as the mystery of godliness. So we have as the economy of the mystery, we have the revelation of the economy of his will in Colossians. This brings us to experience him in our contact with him as the mystery of the faith. Then we live him out as the, as the, uh, mystery, of, as the mystery of godliness. And this brings us to have a full experiential union with him as the great mystery in Ephesians 5.25, which is Christ and the church. This is how we know Christ and the church. Through the extensive revelation of Christ in, in Colossians, which opens up the mystery of the economy in Ephesians 3.9. So point two says, oh, let's see, uh, no, point four says, wisdom and knowledge all refer, also refer to the stories of God. As we experience Christ as the extensive one in Colossians, yes, we know his stories, we enter into his stories, and we, with him, co-author stories. Point five says, all the wisdom and, and all the wisdom and knowledge pertaining to God are, to God's stories are hidden in Christ, who is the mystery of God. So, saints, this weekend, in this incredible revelation, 
given to us at the fullness of time in, in the revelation of what Colossians contains, in its emphasis on the line of Christ's extensiveness. This brings us all the way into him to know him subjectively and experientially as the mystery of God. And as we know him as, as the mystery of God, we partake of his history and we are part of his story. These are all hidden in Christ, the mystery of God. Now, as with the, the previous outlines, the sequence in this outline is crucial, and I'd like us to not miss it. The first, the first part, <clears throat> the first part of the outline is, is the wonder of the mystery of God and the unknowability of the mystery of God apart from the involved, intense, experiential relationship with him that we have through the revelation of, of Christ and his extensiveness. Nextly, nextly we have the fact that this one who is the mystery of God, who we now know have applied to us and draw upon, is the one in whom all the fullness was pleased to dwell. He is the, fu he has, he is the fullness of the divine being. He's the fullness of the Godhead. We know experientially nothing less than the fullness of the Godhead. So saints, what problem do you have? What anxiety should bother you? You have applied to you and ready, ready, readily accessible to you all the fullness of the Godhead in the one who is the mystery of Christ, whom now you're knowing from within through the extensive revelation of Christ in Colossians. And then that's Roman numeral two. Roman numeral three is, is the marvelous truth and application that dear brothers and sisters, we have been made full. We have been made full. And we will see later that it's one thing to have been made full, but if you don't realize that you've been made full and that you have to access having been made full, it may not benefit you that much. Through the extensive revelation of Christ in Colossians, we can realize we have been made full, and our having been made full then becomes an incentive, an inertia, a momentum to lay hold of him and to take advantage of and apply all of that in him through which we have been made full. The fullness of the Godhead has been made and applied to you, making you full. Amen. So how can you live a pitiful life? How can you live a scant life? How can you live a life outside of the extensive revelation of Christ in Colossians? You can't do it because you realize you've been made full. Amen. 
So this is the that will be the concluding note of this message of, of the conference. And so it indicates everything's been cleared away. There's nothing in the way. The highway is open to go all the way to the destination. Now we realize what we've actually had from the very beginning. And we're going to take full advantage of it. Okay, so <clears throat> let's go now to Roman numeral two. As the mystery of God, Christ is the embodiment of the fullness of the Godhead. This verse says, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Point A says, all the fullness of the Godhead refers to the entire Godhead, the complete Godhead. One, the word Godhead here refers to deity and strongly indicates the deity of Christ. Amen. Two, since the Godhead comprises the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the fullness of the Godhead must be the fullness of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Agreed, right? Yes. Three, for Christ to be the embodiment of the fullness of the Godhead means that the fullness of the triune God dwells in Christ in a bodily form. Colossians 2.9, Colossians 1.9, it's, it's accompanying verse, says that all that fullness was excited, pleased, happy to not just be in, its, in himself prior to his incarnation, but in his incarnation, it was pleased to be restricted, limited, and packaged to be delivered to us. B says, fullness in Colossians 2.9 refers not to the riches of God, but to the expression of the riches of God. And so this um, <clears throat> implies our knowing the difference between riches and fullness. Uh, I believe the subpoints will will open this up. Uh, the riches are the contents that pertain to something. The fullness is the expression or the overflow of that content. So riches are within, but they can be less overt and more hidden. But when those riches become fullness, or when there is fullness there, then those riches become evident, displayed, witnessed, and expressed. So, in Christ, all the fullness dwelt. That means that he was filled with all the riches of God in that bodily form, that man had all the riches of God. But they also were expressed. They overflowed. Amen. So no one could see him. No one could be around him and not be, not realize. Although there was not comeliness, there was not impressive outward form, there was something there that expressed the divine Godhead, the very deity of, of God was evident there. Now, in relation to the extensive revelation of Christ in Colossians and the extensive experience of Christ in Colossians, let's consider what that fullness involved. 
course, probably needs the whole Bible to do this. Um, we don't have a photograph. We don't have a video. But let's consider, let's consider that one from whom the riches were being expressed as fullness. What was he doing? He was, as you know, according to numerous passages in the Gospels, he was living in two realms at the same time. So his steps are describable and chartable by following the Synoptic Gospels. We know where he went and we know what he did. We know who was around from the Gospel of John and, of course, from Matthew and, and other, other portions. We realize that while he was doing this, he was in uninterrupted fellowship with the Father. Ongoing interchange, intrinsic dialogue, in indescribably sweet and rich relationship touch. This was the Father. This was, this was the fellowship. going on in this one who contained all the riches of the divine being. And so those who saw him saw someone who was not merely man, but they saw someone who was, in, in a sense, fulfilling Colossians 1.12, living on the good land. He was, he was contacting the Father. He didn't have to contact the Father. But he was contacting the Father with every word and every breath. And as he did, he gave the Father preeminence. As he did, he gave the Father application through, as, as we saw last night, through the various things in his environment. In other words, he was, able to, he was able to point out that the matters in the created universe around him were actually shadows of the divine reality that he himself was and was experiencing in his fellowship with the Father. As he lived <clears throat> with the Father in the conductance of his earthly ministry and relating in the most normal in human way with all those that he related with, there was the fullness. There was the fullness. So now eventually, the point here in this section is that this fullness that he had now is to be possessed by us Amen. who have been made full in him. Amen. So how do, we, how do we express the fullness? We'll express it the same way he expressed it or we'll have it the same way he had it as revealed by the extensive revelation in Colossians, we also realize that we are living in two realms at one time. 
His living in two realms is perhaps best exemplified by John 3.13, where he was the son of man who was on the earth. He told Nicodemus, son of man on the earth, but I'm also in the heavens. So where was he? On the earth or in the heavens? He was in two realms at the same time. Now, Matthew 24, perhaps verses 42 and 43, I believe, will say that it's possible for a believer to be involved in the very daily, tedious, repetitive, mundane aspects of their daily living and be in two realms at one time. Amen. Who can do that? The one who can do that is the one who realizes and applies the extensive revelation of Christ in Colossians and lives in two realms at one time by having the sensation that they're living in him as their good land, the expansive Christ, the expansive pneumatic one, rendering him preeminence in their personal universe, taking him as the reality of all the positive things. As they do that, they live in the good land, they live in two realms at one time, and they have the same fullness and expression that the one in whom all the fullness of the God had dwelt had. And it's just as simple, just as accessible as what we've talked about this weekend. Marvelous. Marvelous. Hallelujah. Yes, so the one who lived this way with the Father in his resurrection became this expansive spirit who as the life-giving one came into us and gave us life and as the extract of the one who lived this way now lives within us to help us to realize we must and can live the same way and opens to be the realm in which we live this way. He's the way we live this way. He's the one who lived this way. He's the one in whom we live this way. He's everything. Amen. This is the expansive Christ in Colossians. Subpoint so 1 under B says, the riches are the quantity of an object, whereas the fullness is the flowing out, the overflow of the object, to become the expression of that object. Two, what dwells in Colossians is not only the riches of the Godhead, but also the expression of the riches of what God is. God's fullness is the overflow of his riches, and this overflow is God's expression. B, the fullness of the Godhead is the expression of the Godhead, the expression of what God is. Three, the, the Godhead is expressed both in the old creation of the universe and in the new creation of the church. And how is this? This is what, how, when we, as those who compose the church, experience him in the church as the one who is, as the, one who is the um, firstborn from among the dead in resurrection by taking him in our daily living as the reality of all the positive things, taking him as the firstborn from among the dead. Did you notice what I just said? 
What I just said was, that by taking him as the reality of the shadows, first of all, we experience him as the one who is the firstborn, from, firstborn of all creation. We saw yesterday that as the firstborn of all creation, he's the first in creation. He precedes everything. He's the creator. All things, he was intimately involved in creation. All things were made by him, with him, in him, for him, onto him. He's intimately involved with creation. So, he's the firstborn of creation. We developed that a little bit more yesterday. But as we take him as the reality of all positive things, we touch him. We touch him as the reality of that thing in the created universe. And we cause that, cause that item, we cause that item that we take as the reality of the shadows to bring our experience of him as the firstborn of all creation through that item. To be an experience of him as the firstborn from among, among the dead. In resurrection, through our, through our contact with him as we take him as the reality of that thing. So, this is an incredible incentive. When we take something, back to my water bottle, when we take something as the reality of the shadows, this thing, which is related to him as the firstborn of all creation, is experienced by me as I contact the Lord appreciating and enjoying this aspect. Because I contact the Lord as I'm touching him as related to this thing in reality, that experience is, is through him in my spirit as, in resurrection becomes an causes him to be experienced by me as the firstborn from among the dead in resurrection and develops a formerly non-existent experience of him as the firstborn from, from among the dead and develops the new realm of what he is in resurrection. All that happens by taking him as the reality of the shadows. Do you see this? Do you see this? Do you see what you do? When you take him as the reality of a shadow, you take something that is related to him as the firstborn from among the dead and cause it to be something that's related to him as the first, no, 
firstborn from among creation, and cause it to be something that's related to him as the firstborn from among the dead. You did that. Where? In your daily living. That you thought was boring. It's not boring. It's exciting. You're converting and bringing everything into a new realm. Let's see. Let's go on to see under two. <clears throat> when the Father was incarnated, at, when the Son of God was incarnated as a man, with him was the fullness of God, and of this fullness we have all received. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. Okay, these subpoints are very good. In, in John 1.16, grace does not refer, 1 John 1.16 says, for of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon <clears throat> grace. Amen. In John 1.16, grace does not refer to the riches of grace, but to the fullness of grace. In other words, not just self-contained grace, grace in the divine being, which came in his incarnation, but the fullness of this grace, the overflow of this grace, the expression of this grace. The riches of grace are in God, but the fullness of grace is in Christ. Two, the grace we receive is the fullness of grace. Beginning from the time we are saved, we may receive grace upon grace. Oh, from the time we are saved, we may receive grace upon grace. The phrase grace upon grace in John 1.16 can be compared to the rolling waves of the sea that come in wave after wave, without ceasing. So, to elaborate on this just, just slightly. Okay, here's the Lord, living in two realms at one time, in, in fellowship and communion with the Father, and say the Apostle John was there. And he's watching this. And as he sees, he sees the, he, he sees the Lord uh, in a particular instance, there's the fullness of grace emanating out of the Lord's living in fellowship with the Father in what he's doing. And so the fullness reaches John and becomes, we could say, a wave of grace, observed and observable out of the fullness of the Godhead embodied in Christ in his living. Then the Lord died and resurrected and came into John came into John. And now, now John, through the Lord's indwelling, can receive wave after wave after wave of grace. Now, when he was observing him before his, before his um, crucifixion, the arriving wave could be likened to someone sitting on the seaside. And the sea's coming, and the waves, the waves come. And isn't that a delightful sight and a delightful experience, wave after wave after wave. We all love to go to the beach, right? Wave after wave after wave. And so John might have had his foot in the water and felt the ocean coolness and, and wave after wave was coming. I think you know what I'm going to say now, right? So, so also, also those waves came into him and he enjoyed those waves 
as Christ indwelt him and came to him as grace upon grace, wave after wave. Now, when John realized in the maturity of life that Christ was not only to be indwelling him, but that he was to have his living in Christ, then John not only had wave after wave, but he was in the ocean. Amen. He was in the ocean. <laughs> so there's refreshment with wave after wave as you put your foot in the water, but there's saturation. There's filling. There's filling when you're in the ocean. So when we, through the extensive revelation of Christ in Colossians, find ourselves on the good land, giving him preeminence, taking him as the reality of every positive thing. We're in the ocean. Amen. And in the wording of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we are baptized into him and, and given to drink, saturated with him. So this is, this is, this is our experience of the fullness. So, the mystery of God, unknowable. All this mystery of what God is, is in Christ. And now it becomes knowable because now it's not just riches of what God is in his mystery, but now there's fullness. There's fullness. But this fullness, this fullness is generated by God as a man, living in two realms at one time, living on the good land with preeminence and involving his environment to have extensive experience. Now, he indwells us and brings the universally vast and spacious Christ into us for us to live in him, live in him, and to have an open we have this phrase right in our hymn, ocean fullness to be our experience. So <clears throat> this brings us to the final point, Roman numeral three. As believers in Christ, we are made full in Christ. Amen. So this is one of the most mysterious verses in the whole New Testament, Colossians 2.10. He's, yes, he's the head of all rule and authority. When we access this by giving him full preeminence in the previously described experience, we realize that we have been made all. So with this we conclude. With this point we conclude. In the marvelous typology, the poetic typology of Song of Songs, there's a wonderful mystery that through four stages of experience and the eight chapters in the book, the seeker goes from a very preliminary stage of being attracted and overtaken and captivated by the Lord, pursuing him, 
and she obviously is changed, obviously grows, obviously matures. She becomes the Shulamite. She's able to serve with him. Now she's waiting for his, for his uh, coming. She's passed through all these experiences. Passed through all these experiences. She's coming up. Says, who is this? Coming up out of the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved. And then he says, the voice asked this question. Who is this coming up out of the wilderness? Then he asks, asks the question, or then he, he responds. The Lord responds then and says, I found you under the apple tree. What a seemingly incongruent thing to say. She's fully matured. She's coming out of everything. Now she's fully his, ready, ready for rapture. And he says, I found you under the apple tree. Now what does this mean? In Song of Songs 2, 3, I think, it says, well, she says, oh, my beloved, is like the apple tree, better than all the trees of the wood. And I'm under his shade and enjoying his fruit. So the Lord's reference to the apple tree takes her back to stage one, back to the beginning. Where, he, where she first enjoyed him and she was enjoying him, but he had found her. Then in chapter 8 it says, there your mother gave birth to you. So what does this mean? This means that when she's, when she's completed her course, she's made it, she's fully ready to be raptured, then he would, he would say to her from the very beginning, When I gave birth to you, I gave you everything. You had it all, you had it all right then. You had it all right then. Yes, you've accessed it through a lot of curves, a lot of turns. You've made it. But from the very beginning, all you've discovered, all you worked for, all you've eventually encountered, it was there. It was there for you. That's why in Colossians 2.10 it uses the past tense, the past perfect tense, to say you have been made full. Who did he tell this to? He told this to the problematic, distracted Colossians. You have been made full already. So, applied to our conference fellowship. What does this mean? This means that if we would like to take a straight course, if we would like to cut out the turns and the detours, if we would like to be expedited, take the express lane, we've got it. We've got it. We have 
we have the revelation of the extensive Christ in Colossians, which we now follow in our experience. And this has all been worked out for us and is absolutely accessible for us. From the time of our regeneration, we could have taken a straight course if we had only known. But we didn't know. But now we know. Now we know. So, what if now we don't take a straight course? Sad, huh? Now we can just take that straight course. So we can, again, follow this sequence of the extensive revelation of Christ in, in, in Colossians. This eventually takes us to the point that we know in experiential relationship the mystery of God from within in affectionate personal relationship. As, re as a result of this, we are able to live in two realms at one time and deliver to others the fullness of the expression of all that God is. And then we have and we convey and explain the history and the mystery of God. And that's it. And the, Lord's, the Lord has come in our personal universe, and he's come back. Everything in our universe, everything in our being is him. So now our story is Colossians 3.11, where Christ is all and in all. We're the new man, we're the bride, he comes back. Amen. Wonderful. Amen. Okay, I'll just uh, read through these points then, and... and um, <clears throat> Then I'll just say another word or two. Uh, a under three, the Greek word full in verse 10 implies completion, perfection. B, because the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ, and because we have been put into him, we've been made full in him, that is, filled with the divine riches. Let's see, do I have time to read these points? Okay, one, we've been put, we who believe have been put into Christ. Two, we've been put in the all-inclusive extensive Christ, identified with him, joined to him as our husband. Hence, we are one with him and know him as the mystery of God. Three, because we are one with Christ, we partake of all that he has accomplished, attained, obtained. We inherit all that Christ has experienced and passed through. We receive all that he is and has. All that he has passed through is now our history. All that he has attained has become our inheritance. As a result, all that he is and all that he has belonged to us, and he, what he has experienced has become our history. See, we need to have a full realization of what we have in Christ and exercise faith to partake of all that is ours in Christ. D, because this fullness is all-inclusive, it accomplishes everything for us. It fully satisfies and supplies us, and it makes us full 
perfect, and complete. Amen. E, we have the all-inclusive, inexhaustible fullness that dwells in Christ bodily, and in him we are made full. Amen. Wow. Incredible. Amen. So in this sense, in this sense, our line of the extensive revelation of Christ passes through chapter 2 to end up with verse 2 and finally with verse 10. And we, knowing that we've been made full in Christ, activate this series and we live in him in the good land, walk in him, are rooted in him, give him the preeminence, take him as the reality of all positive things, know him as the mystery of God, have been made full. This is Christ in the church. This is the assurance. This is the riches of the assurance of understanding. This comforts our hearts. This makes us immovable. Amen. Wow. Now, uh, let's see. Uh, my concern is that um, what we've enjoyed this weekend will be taken as um, um, another conference. Um, maybe something in a notebook or something on a recording that maybe we'll pull out sometime in the future and say, well, maybe it'd be good to listen to that again. It would be tragic if it was just that. Or, even more importantly, we could say, I'm not sure I understood that. Uh, that was a little bit um, abstract to me. Uh, I couldn't quite uh, grasp this. I couldn't quite lay hold of this. And so, uh, <clears throat> I'd like to leave you with three things. One is that what we had this weekend bears the divine signature. What do I mean by that? How do you know when something is, is divinely provided? It's that you can't figure it out. <laughs> it's mysterious. It's too wonderful. It's too much. If you could, if you could propose it, if you could, if you could plan it, if you could outline it yourself, it wouldn't be divine. So if you can easily understand it, then it's not what it's not what you're really looking for. But the the corresponding side of this is that it is to be understood through practice. It's to be understood through experience. So although living in Christ, the pneumatic spirit, as our good land, is abstract, through this weekend, 
we have to say that it has been made very practical. And as I said last night, there is no one here, including the junior hires among us, who could say, I don't think I can practice that. So the divine signature is at the bottom of this uh, conference proceeding. It's mysterious, but it's practical and real. And so through the practice and in the experience, we have entry. And when we get inside, we know the mystery. Amen. We know the mystery of God. The next thing is that we have to remember the divine demeanor. And the divine demeanor is that he doesn't come to you in easily definable terms Because if he did, it would be all his story. Back to what we had in the outline. He wants it to be our story. He wants to attract you, to cause you to be captivated by him, drawn to him, so that it was your idea, in a sense, your agreement, your willingness, your participation. And so he comes in a soft way, gentle way, receding way, not so overt, not with clanging bells and big letters. So don't take the fact that these wonderful things we had this weekend are mysterious as being too much. This is God coming to you. This is God coming to you. The other side is that the other part of his demeanor is this. Not only does he not come overtly because he doesn't want to obligate you, but according to, again, back to Song of Songs, chapter 6, maybe verse 5 somewhere, for you to be responsive to him overwhelms him, overwhelms the very God. It's like he's proposing to you, and you're about to say yes, and he can hardly take it. So he says there, he says, wanting, in Song of Songs 6, wanting her eyes to meet his, he says, turn your eyes away from me, for they overwhelm me. So he comes to you in this way because he, it's hard for him to take it when you respond positively to him. So he does everything in a gentle way that he can manage. This is the divine being. This is the mystery of God. And finally, finally, remember that the key here, derivatively, is the divine romance. He 
he's speaking these things to you is to engage you intimately, affectionately, and ultimately. So don't discard it by saying, it's too much. It's too high. It's not too much. It's not too high. And since, Colossians 2.10 says, it's been prepared for you from the beginning, don't lose any more time. Pick it up. Amen. Pick it up. Make straight course. So, Let's encourage one another in this, crucial ver in this crucial verse on the extensiveness of Christ that we borrow from Ephesians 3.18 to apply to uh, uh, Colossians 2, 6, and 16 through 18. We're in the dimensionless Christ, pursuing the experiences of him all together to apprehend them and lay hold of them together. So let's encourage one another and pray for one another. Amen. So praise the Lord Amen. for knowing and experiencing the all-inclusive and extensive Christ in Colossians. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Saints, let's take the